Acts chapter 14 is where we're headed today. Go ahead and have a seat, and uh, we'll be reading our text in a minute. I love the opportunity, like we have today, as I was sitting there on the front row and looking up here at the stage, it's quite obvious that a conference is happening, that it's not a real typical day here at West Coast Baptist College or Lancaster Baptist Church. We don't always have teepees on the platform. And I was thinking back to just, I think, two years ago during a ladies' conference in a men's leadership night out at the Walther Center. We had a guest preacher that time, unlike last night we had Pastor Chapel. And the guest preacher was Brother Doug Fisher. And I'll never remember this particular message. Because, I'll never forget, rather, this message because I was sitting with some church members. And I remember uh, Pastor Fisher asking, and, and I don't know about you, there are some services that despite my best effort, I don't always stay 100% with where the preacher is in his message. And I really do try. I'll sit on the front of my seat, and I've got some tricks. I try to stay locked in. But I don't know what I was thinking about at the moment. I, I, I heard Pastor Fisher ask, how many of you men pray for your wife? I raised my hand. I pray for my wife, love uh, the opportunity to be married. It's just an absolute privilege to be married to uh, Brandy England. And uh, in fact, Dr. Getch was there when we got engaged. And I'm just uh, so thrilled to be married. And I pray for my wife, so I raise my hand. And, and I noticed that the guy right beside me, the other church member, who I knew was married, didn't raise his hand. And, and I wasn't trying to be smug or I wasn't trying to be um, uh, too prideful, but I, I wondered, well, I wonder why he doesn't pray for his wife. And uh, Pastor Fisher went on and repeated the question, said, hey, that's just amazing. Let's do it again. Every, if you're praying for your wife, raise your hand real high. So I raised my hand real high. And not only now is the church member not raising his hand, he's starting to chuckle. And I wasn't sure why that was, and it was getting a little bit hesitant about maybe I should have been paying a little bit more attention to the message. And Pastor Fisher repeated the third time what he had actually said. It wasn't what I thought he said. And he said, these men with their hands raised are praying for a wife. Let's pray for them. <laughs> I've got four kids at home. <laughs> My wife's at the marriage conference, at the, at the uh, ladies' conference. Brother Houck's sitting right behind me, and I heard him. I didn't realize he was behind me until this moment. I heard him whisper, better become a Mormon, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I need to listen better. Maybe, maybe you've had those opportunities to show that as well. So just try to stay with me. I won't ask for a whole lot of hand raising. Just uh, Have you ever done it at the end of the service? How you need to get saved? Raise your hand. You raise your hand. You thought you were raising it because you were saved. You ever done that wrong? And so I appreciate conferences. I appreciate church. I appreciate chapel. I was thinking back, Dr. Getch, to my first time at chapel, I think it was probably about August 26th. I looked that up. August 26th of 2001 in the North Auditorium. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget those first chapels as a student, an undergraduate student here at West Coast Baptist College and the impact that they had in my life. As a quick aside, the chapels did not have as great of an impact on my life as my friends did. I want to encourage you this morning to be the right friend and to choose the right friend. That's an entirely different message. But I certainly remember those early days. And I, w I was looking at how many chapels have happened since that day. And I think it's over 1,500 chapels since my first chapel at West Coast Baptist College. And I've been to the vast majority of those chapels. And there's been some differences in the chapels. Some of the chapels have uh, gone a little bit long. Some of the chapels were pretty short. Uh, many of the chapels had 
an American speaker. Periodically, we had somebody from a different country. We had, we've had chapels that have focused on Old Testament or New Testament passages. We've had many different kinds of chapels. Sometimes the special music has gone flawless, as, as it certainly did today. Sometimes there's been a little bit of a, a blooper. Sometimes we've sang less or prayed more. And they've, they've, there's been some differences between many of the chapels. But I think that there's a common denominator, maybe more than one, but at least one thing that's been true for every single chapel that I've ever been to, which is well over a thousand, close to one and a half thousand chapels at West Coast Baptist College, and that is that they've all had a text of Scripture that was preached from. Now, to be fully transparent, not every preacher has handled the Word of God with the equal care, but the reality is there's always been a text. Well, it was about... Maybe six weeks ago, I got an email inviting me to speak in a chapel today or, or at some point this week, and I, of course, was honored. And I was given the topic to preach and to maybe do a, some teaching on the existence of God. And I don't know about you, but I have heard all of my life that the Bible doesn't talk about that. That the Bible assumes God's existence, but the Bible never gives any reasons for belief. The Bible never gives any arguments for God's existence. So first thing crossed my mind was, will this be the first chapel where we don't preach from the Bible? And it's not, if you're wondering, it's not. But the, the reality is, when we go to the Word of God, that the existence of God is assumed. God is the beginning of all things. God is self-existence. God is self-existent. God, God doesn't need an explanation, nor could He be given an explanation. God is beyond all that. God is the, the foundation of all that we know, the foundation of all that we hope, the foundation of all that exists. His act, His creation is, is the source of all of the universe. And, and it's just kind of assumed there in Genesis chapter number 1. But I do think as you continue to read through Scripture, it wouldn't be accurate to say that there are no reasons for belief that are given to us in the Word of God. And we're, we're going to look at one of those in a moment here in the passage that I selected. It's a fascinating passage to me for so many reasons. As I read through the book of Acts, I love seeing God reach down and touch the life of the Apostle Paul. It's absolutely amazing to me how God chose this chief persecutor of the church and radically transformed his life by his grace and used him in such a powerful way in the work that he had called him to do. The, the, the Roman Empire was completely changed by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. As we go through this, this passage, there's something extremely unique about Acts chapter 14. I don't know about you, but I often have this thought, boy, I read the Bible too quickly. I'll often, I'll often have somebody explain a passage, or I'll study a passage out, I'll read something, or I'll, I'll look at the Greek, or I'll, I'll take a little bit closer look at something, and I'll, I'll go, oh, that's what it means. I have in no way to come close or may ever, probably never will come close to the scripture memory done by our executive vice president, Dr. Getch, but I have memorized a good number of passages, and I've memorized uh, a few of the shorter books, and, and you've memorized stuff as well if you've uh, been to, here at college for some time, or you've been maybe in, in Christian high school. Have you ever had this experience where you've memorized a verse, you've memorized a passage, and then like five years later, you figured out what it meant? Is that, am I the only one that's happened to? Like, I could quote it, but I didn't understand it, right? 
And so many times I feel like I read the Bible too quickly and I don't get all that's there. And part of that is my reason for going back again and again and again. You never exhaust the riches of the Word of God. But when I get to Acts chapter number 14, I see something that sets it apart from, from so many different elements of the New Testament. In fact, we're, we're, we're looking here in this passage at a brief sermon of the Apostle Paul. Now we understand this, that the sermons recorded in Scripture are, are, are almost certainly a, a summary of the sermons. They're probably not word for word. They're Sermon on the Mount. You quote the whole thing or read it out loud in five minutes. And probably Jesus took more time on that mount giving that truth in five minutes. But the essential truths and the core thoughts of what he said is recorded there for us. And no doubt the same is true here. And it's the life of the Apostle Paul, and he's traveling into uh, a, an area that has, has really no knowledge of the one true God. And it's the only time, in fact, it's, it's the first time for sure, perhaps the only time we really see the gospel being presented, and we've got the message recorded in a completely pagan context. The Apostle Paul ministered in many, many different contexts. In fact, in chapter 13, right before where we are today, he's at Antioch and he's in a synagogue and they read from the Old Testament and then basically Paul gives an exegesis of the entire book of Exodus. It's pretty amazing. He's just exegeting scripture and and he's in a Jewish audience, but he's not in a Jewish audience here in Acts chapter number 14. He's in a pagan audience. Sometimes I feel like we as, as Christians, as, as, uh, as, as conservative Christians, I feel like sometimes we may be a little bit hesitant to, 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 um, modify in any way our presentation of the truth in consideration for the context or the audience that is before us because we don't want to be charged with contextualization or something. But I don't feel like Paul had that concern. Because I feel like when we read Acts chapter number 14, he has a completely different approach to sharing truth than I find in Acts chapter 13 with the Jewish audience or Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill with the philosophers. He goes about it completely in a different way. And the remarkable thing to me about Acts chapter 14 is I don't know what all Paul said, but what we have recorded is absent any specific text of Scripture. It's remarkable. It's in the Bible, but he doesn't quote the Bible. And as we get in this context, as we set this, we'll read it a little bit as a time as, as we go through, and we'll look at three routes of revelation that we have described or illustrated in this passage by the Apostle Paul. What we'll find is Paul is talking to a group of people that don't start with the knowledge of the Old Testament even. So Paul comes into this, this city, and he's, he is, is uh, about to begin ministry, and we pick up this passage uh, here in Acts chapter 14, let's begin reading in verse number 8. We'll read down and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, describe what we've seen here and, and continue through the passage. Acts chapter 14 and verse number 8. You can be seated, but follow along as I read out loud. The Bible reads here, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. In the same herd, Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, perceived that he had faith to be healed, and said with a loud voice, stand, up, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped, and he walked. And the text continues, and when the people saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker and the chief, and then the priests of Jupiter, 
which was before the city, brought oxen and garland into the gates and would have done sacrifices with the people. Question, have you ever been mistaken for a god? Probably not. I've been mistaken for some people before. Maybe you have as well. But nobody's ever mistook me for a god. And yet in this passage, that's exactly what happens. They walk into the city and they preach the gospel. They're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And then they see someone who is impotent on his feet. And God, through the, the grace of God given to Paul as an apostle, he turns and he heals this individual. And they're mistaken for God. The first route of revelation, the first way that God reveals himself that I want to speak of from this passage is the, the, the revelation of God through miracles. Now this is something very unique in the first century time, but very important for us as we learn about God, as we study our faith, that God has substantiated His claims at times through works of miracles. As we look at this passage, Paul walks in. We know we're different from Paul in many ways. We haven't been beaten. We haven't been shipwrecked. We, uh, we never were the success that Paul was in his career for most of us. But, but, but we're also different in that we're not apostles. We may be sent ones. We may be deputized by a church to go start another church. We may be uh, sent from a home church to a mission field. But, but we're sent ones in that sense. But we're not apostles in the sense that the apostle Paul was. We recognize that our churches today have some differences from the churches in the first century. And one of those areas, while we have a lot of similarities, one of those areas is that we no longer have apostles in our churches today. In fact, the reason why we are a true church in an apostolic sense, we follow the apostles' tradition, is because we don't have apostles. <laughs> because the apostles were given to the church for a specific foundational period of time, and the Bible tells us that quite clearly. You see, the fact is, and Pastor mentioned this Sunday morning, if you're here at the service of Lancaster Baptist Church, God has used miracles very strategically at several points in history. In fact, if you were here, you'll remember the message this morning, uh, Sunday morning was on doubt. It was on the doubt of Moses. Tremendous message. And as, as we went through that passage in Exodus, what we were reminded of was that Moses had doubts. Let me just stop here for a minute and say, it is uncommon for people to be used greatly of God and never ever experience a doubt. Sometimes we have the idea that if I have a doubt, that somehow means I'm inferior. Somehow my faith is, is, is unable to sustain following God. I'm here to tell you, if you're in the room and you've ever had a doubt, you're in good company. Moses had doubts. John the Baptist had doubts. So many of the people that God has used in a great way have had doubts. And sometimes we get this idea that, that, that the way that we can get a strong faith in our life, if you want a strong faith, if I were to ask the question, how many of, you, how many of us want a strong faith? I think, we'd all, I think we'd all raise our hand. I think we'd all affirm that we want a strong faith. But sometimes we get the idea, if you want to have a strong faith, the route to a strong faith is to find and identify any doubt in your life and run as fast as you can in the other direction. If you ever find some doubt in your life, Try to wrestle that doubt into a dark closet in the back of your mind. Lock the door and throw away a key and just pretend like it doesn't exist and decide you're going to believe without any doubts at all. I'll never forget the late night in July, 19, I think, 99. 
as, uh, again, Dr. John Getch was preaching at a camp in Wisconsin. I'm from the Midwest, and I was there at the camp. And I, I've never asked. I don't know if he remembers this event. But if I were an evangelist and I were preaching at a camp, and, and many of the leaders in this room do, I would think after the service my goal would be probably to uh, get some, some alone time and uh, maybe get some time to think or to read or to do, do some work. But I was one of those teenagers that had to talk to the preacher. I remember uh, cornering Dr. Getch under a, under a street light and, uh, there in that camp in Wisconsin and saying, Dr. Getch... Um, I just, I've, I've got these questions, I've got these doubts, I'm trying to determine what, how to grow my faith, and I remember the help that he was, I remember talking to my dad, I remember talking to so many other people, because I wasn't one of those people that never had a doubt, I wasn't one of those people that never had a question. And Moses was like that. And, and this summer I got a great opportunity. One of the, the, the men that I've read and followed for such a long time, Gary Habermas is one of the biggest names in apologetics, probably the top five. He's written over uh, 40 books and has been on almost 2,000 different TV shows. I mean, he's just an expert in his field. And I was going to be in the area, so I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'd love to meet you and get a picture with you. I'd love to get you to sign a book that you wrote or something. And, and he was like, well, let's do lunch together. That'd be amazing. So I got the opportunity this summer to sit down and to spend uh, about two hours with uh, Dr. Habermas. And he said, Toby, he said, as I began this work in apologetics, as I began writing and researching and working on my doctorate, he said, now today I look back and I have had thousands of people tell me that it helped them find Christ. And I've had, I've had, I've had tens of thousands of Christians tell me it's helped strengthen their faith. But Toby, that's not what drove me. He said, what drove me? as a young man, to do the research on the resurrection is I had questions. And I had to do the research to find some answers for my faith. And I realized that I was sitting with another one of God's great servants who's experienced doubt at moments. And what we find in Moses' life, if you remember Sunday morning, is Moses had doubt and God responded how? He gave him a sign. You see, the Jews are sometimes chastised by Paul because the, Paul says they always seek for a sign. And yet the, the real chastisement is that the Jews were given a sign and didn't receive them. You see, the Messiah was to come giving signs. The Messiah was to come as a miracle worker. In fact, the Bible tells us what one of God's purposes for miraculous acts is in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 22. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. In Acts chapter 22... Acts 2, verse 22, the Bible says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him. You see, he was speaking to a Jewish audience here on Pentecost. and He, was like, he said, Jesus of Nazareth was approved by God. He was he was, he was, uh, he was, God approved of him. God uh, accredited him. God, uh, God validated him. God, God affirmed him. Uh, Jesus was approved by God by the signs and wonders and mighty works that he did. Remember Nicodemus? He came by night and he said to Jesus, Jesus, we know thou art come from God for no man can do these what? 
miracles that thou doest, except God be with them. See, see, there was a purpose that God gave in that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number 3 through 4, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken of by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? Verse number 4. God also bearing them witness. Think about that. God bore witness to those early preachers of the gospel. God bore witness. How did God do that? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 4 tells us, God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His will. So we see in this passage that God has revealed Himself through miracles. Now we don't expect, we don't have the gifts of miracles today. I'll, I'll certainly say God can still do miracles. God still does miracles. I believe, there, there's nothing God's done in the past that He can't do now. God's still a miracle working God. But we don't have people with the gift of miracles. We don't get to uh, determine when those miracles are going to be seen. We don't have those sign gifts in the church today because that revelation has been given. The New Testament is complete and there's plenty of Scripture on that. But we see in this passage that Paul walks in and he does a sign and the people respond in awe. But not only do they respond in awe, but they respond wrongly. I mean, you, you read the text just a moment ago. They saw the miracles. But their conclusion wasn't, what must I do to be saved, right? Their conclusion wasn't, man, this must be the truth. I need to hear what they're teaching about the gospel. Remember, they heard him speak. And then they saw him do a miracle, and then they tried to worship him. How many think there's a disconnect there? They heard him speak. What do you think Paul was speaking? He was sharing the gospel. They heard him speak. They saw him do a miracle, and then they tried to worship him. I was reminded as I read this quote, this passage of a quote by G.K. Chesterton, who said, When men choose not to believe in God... They do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. And this passage, instead of concluding that God is revealing Himself to us through these people, or that this is God validating the preachers of the Gospel, they began to worship the messengers, or at least attempting to. We see the role of miracles in the revelation of God. Secondly, we see God reveals Himself through creation. I love how Paul responds. Is Paul going to let these people worship him? Of course not. In fact, he's so agitated about it, he rents his clothes. Probably, usually it, was, it wasn't like he was tearing his shirt off his back. It usually was a three or a four inch tear torn in the top of the tunic. And it was a symbolic action showing the, the utter despair, the, the dismay of the person that was doing that act. So he rents his clothes and he runs them in among them and he's trying to stop them. He didn't even know what they were doing before. He couldn't understand their language. If you've ever been on a mission trip or on a foreign field where, where you're, you're the only person speaking your language, you kind of know what that's like. They didn't know what was going on until the last minute. And he runs in there and he has this message for them and he wants to show that they're not worshiping right. And he, and he runs in verse number 15. And he cries out and says, Sir... Why do ye do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities 
and to the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Paul walks in and Paul, Paul runs in and he cries aloud and he says, your worship is wrong, your worship is vain. By the way, false worship is not man's attempt to reach out to God. False worship is man in rebellion against God's general revelation. And Paul runs in here and Paul says, you, I, I'm here to teach the true, the living God. What is it that we know about this God, Paul? He doesn't, he doesn't start with Genesis. He doesn't start with John 3.16. He says, God is the creator of the heavens. You realize God's revealed himself through creation. I love the night sky. Some of you that, some of the leaders here in this college that were here when I came in 2001 know that my intent was to come for one year to get some good Bible and then to go on and study physics. I wanted to do, uh, do uh, astronomy and do research and that's just kind of, I had a route set that that's the direction I wanted to go. I'm drawn to the night sky. Sometimes I tell people that I came for one year and they're still, they still haven't gotten rid of me. So if you're here for one year, it may turn out longer than you thought but there's something about that night sky when you look into the deep inky darkness when you see the milky way when you look at these dots these specks of light and realize that many of them are whole galaxies with hundreds of thousands or millions of stars and all you see is a single dot when you realize that the universe itself is expanding away from us we don't know where the edges of the universe are most people think they're flying away from us at the speed of light, like the whole fabric of space is being stretched. We don't understand it. And people are talking about dark matter, and we're trying to get answers to these questions. We just can't understand. But when we look out, we certainly feel so very, very small. And there's something out there so very, very big. And David said in Psalm chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, I don't know what declare means to you, but it's not a whisper. Sometimes in our house, we've got four kids. Sometimes a couple of the kids will be playing in the upstairs bedroom. We'll tell one of the kids, go tell your siblings it's time to eat. I don't know if you ever had a task like that as a kid. In a parent's mind, here's what should happen. That kid's supposed to walk over to the bedroom or walk up the steps, go in the room and convey the message. Is that what happens? No, 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 no. Never that's what happens. The kid walks in the other room, they cup their hands over their mouth, and they yell, it's time to eat. And we think, we could have done that, right? I sent you to go tell them. But they just walk in the other room, they put their hands over their mouth, you know what they do? They declare the time of day, it's time to eat. And the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The, first, the earth, the, the, the heavens show His handiwork. Day unto day utter a speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where His voice is not heard. His line has gone out through all the earth. His words to the end of the world. In them hath He set a tabernacle for the sun. You see, Paul walks in and Paul says, the one true God, the Creator God, is the God that caused the heavens to exist. And then he said, Number two in verse number 15, we see God is revealed through the heavens. We see secondly, He created the heavens and He created the earth. You know, this is a really wonderful year to be a Christian. 2017. There's a great need for the gospel. There are great tools at our disposal. There's a great moving of God that we can see. And sometimes we, we wonder what's going on in America. But I tell you, you look in, in the eastern countries in a lot of places. You look in the southern hemisphere in a lot of places. I'm here to tell you, the church is not dying today. God is at work. 
But one of the reasons why I love being a Christian today in 2017 is that there are more reasons to be a Christian and more reasons to believe in God today than there was when I went to Bible college. And the fact is, just the fact that God created the earth is more demonstrable now than ever before. In 1966, there was a famous Time magazine that on the cover had the, the iconic red border. It had a black cover and in bold uppercase letters on that Time magazine, the cover said, Is God Dead? And in there, it talked about Nietzsche, and it talked about those that would tell us that God is dead, that we don't need God, that we have answers that exclude the need for God. In that very year, not a part of that article, but in that very year, 1966, Carl Sagan, the famed atheistic scientist of the popular TV show that your grandparents or parents may remember, Carl Sagan came out and, and said that there were two characteristics necessary for life that any planet has to have in order to support life. There were two that were known in 1966. In 2009, Hugh Ross published a book, and in Hugh Ross's book, he identified 676 characteristics of a planet that have to be there or no life is possible. You know, the more we learn about the world, the more we learn about science, the less plausible any explanation other than God becomes. Atheists are fond of telling us that science is explaining more and more of what we used to attribute to God. The water cycle, why the sky is blue, how babies are born, why crops grow. People say that, used to be people would say, oh, God's doing that, now we understand the scientific natural laws behind it and here's the claim that as science explains more and more your need for god becomes less and less they call it the god of the gaps theory but you know what modern science has reversed that trend the fact is that there is more need for explanation for what we know about the universe now than there has ever been in the history of human knowledge in fact i was enjoying some research on this and i saw that uh, the Nature magazine, Atheistic Naturalistic Science magazine with peer-reviewed articles, Nature magazine on August 13th of 2002 wrote this, our universe is so unlikely that we must be missing something. <laughs> our universe is so unlikely that we must be missing something. Can I tell you this morning that from 2002 to 2017, the amount of knowledge that we have that makes our world look implausible in a naturalistic worldview has increased, not decreased. The amount that is missing from a scientific naturalistic explanation has increased, not decreased, and we know who they are missing, don't we? And Paul says, God is the creator of heaven. Then he said, secondly, God is the creator of earth. And then he says, and of the sea, and of all things therein. God is the creator of all life. The fact is that it's not often stated clearly by somebody that's an evolutionist, but evolution does not explain life even if you're an evolutionist. They think it explains a variety, a diversification, a specialization, a hierarchy of life. But no one claims that evolution explains the origin of life. And the fact is that the more we learn about life, the more remarkable life appears to be. It was, I think, four years ago now, I was in my 
my living room there, off of, we live off of about 22nd Street and Avenue J here on the east side of town, not far at all. Some of you have knocked our house before. And uh, if I'm still in my pajamas and, and, and uh, T-shirt, I might not have even answered it. I don't know, but <laughs> you've been by our house. I was in our living room, and all of a sudden the kids were going nuts outside, and they are pulling the sliding door, and it kind of gets stuck sometimes, and they work the sliding door back, and they come piling in one after another, all talking over each other, all out of breath. And they said, Daddy, 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 there's a smiley face in the sky. There's a smiley face in the sky? Yeah, in the clouds. I said, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing, and tried to go back to what I was doing earlier, but that wasn't going to work. Like, you got to come see, you got to come see. So they grabbed my hand, and they drug me outside, and I looked up in the sky, and sure enough, there was a smiley face in the clouds. There's a perfect circle, two dots for an eye, and a big smiley face. It was bizarre. So I unlocked the gate, and I walked outside, and I looked down the street. Not only was there a smiley face in the sky, further down the street... In the sky, it said, L.A. Air Show, in the clouds. Now I knew what was going on. Now I knew there was somebody up there in an airplane or some drones up there with special equipment that were sky riding, that were putting words in the sky and putting the smiley face in the sky. Because when you look up and you see a smiley face in the sky, we know this, that only minds make messages that... The only source of information is from intelligence, and science has shown that, and our experience has shown that, and when we look at life, God is the only explanation. There was an article published in the Scientific American Journal in 2011, and I'm not going to quote extensively from the article. The entire article is very, very interesting, very respected atheistic scientist. I'm just going to read you the title of the article. Here's the title of the article in Scientific American, 2011. The title of the article is, Don't Tell the Creationist, But science don't, doesn't, Scientists Don't Have a Clue How Life Began. <laughs> don't tell the creationist, but scientists don't have a clue how life began. Because the more we learn and the more we see the more evidence that we have pointing back to God. We see in this passage quite clearly that God reveals himself through a miracle. We see secondly that God reveals himself through creation. And thirdly, oh, and this is my favorite, God reveals himself through what we often call common grace. Common grace. Let me read you the passage. Oh, this is so incredible. Verse number 17. Can we read it together? Do you have it in front of you? Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. What had just happened? The gospel had just been preached. A miracle had just been performed. Uh, the the, the uh, argument that God exists because of creation had just been made. And, and now what happens? Paul concludes with this statement, verse number 17. Read it together if you found it. It begins with nevertheless. Let re let's read it together. Here it is. Nevertheless, he hath left not himself without witness. In that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you really thoroughly 
had a good time. What's the last experience that you can think of that you absolutely enjoyed? There's a lot for me. Maybe a lot for you. I'll be honest. I got up this morning fairly early, went through my morning routine, which includes putting some fresh ground whole bean coffee beans in my coffee maker, heating some water. This may sound silly. I thoroughly enjoyed my cup of coffee this morning. I really did. And then I enjoyed breakfast. And then I enjoyed some reading. I enjoyed some time with God. I enjoyed my family. Plan to do a little bit more of that this weekend. I enjoyed church last night. Hey, I enjoyed having a comfortable suit to put on this morning. I enjoyed having shoes without holes in them. I have shoes with holes in them. They're not the ones I put on this morning because I wanted to look good for you guys. There are so many things that I have that I can look at and enjoy. And you know what Paul is saying here? Paul looks at these pagan people and here's what, God, here's what Paul says. God has not left himself without a witness. You, the pagan people he's talking to, you have a witness of God. Young people, what witness does Paul say should have pointed them back to God? This is the witness. Paul says, you should know that God exists because he's given you rain. We got some rain this week. In fact, Jesus talks about that on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you should be like your Father which is in heaven, for he giveth rain on the just and on the unjust. That's common grace. God is good to His creation even when we're in rebellion against Him. Aren't you glad for that? That's God. That wouldn't be you. That wouldn't be me. But that's God. He says, God sent you rain. He says, God gave you food. God has fed you. God has provided for you. Hey, have you really enjoyed a meal over the last day or two? Say, man, I haven't enjoyed anything I ate in the SLC. Well, skip two meals and then go. It'll be awesome, I promise you. <laughs> and I think we got great food here in the SLC. But I'm telling you, we have provision that is supposed to point us back to God. Two days ago, I had a few minutes between different things. I was getting ready, if I recall right, to head home for lunch. And I uh, hadn't been online at, at any point for about 24 hours, as I recall. And I thought I wanted to check the news and see what was going on two days ago. Apparently, two days ago, according to Google News or news.google.com, there was only one important event that happened two days ago. New iPhone. <laughs> iPhone 8, iPhone 8 Plus, and iPhone X? Uh, iPhone X? <laughs> And I looked at that, and I, I mean, it was like, it was part of the world news, and part of the national news, and part of the technology news, and part of, you know, the different news is broken down. It was like, headline in every department. Like, really? A new cell phone? Is that world headline? Well, apparently the world's okay if that's the headlines, right? And as I looked at that, and as I considered that, I thought about the, 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 the pursuit that we have of satisfaction, the pursuit that we have toward the material. And I've got nothing wrong with a new iPhone. And if, if you've already got one pre-ordered, that's fine. I'm, there's nothing wrong at all with that. But here's the point. When you get it, and when you open that box, and when you pull that out, and you're like, oh man, this is awesome. Remember who gave you that gift? 
You see, James says that, that our blessings come down from the Father above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The fact is, all good that you've experienced is the result of the grace of God and should always make us look back to God as the source of that blessing. I don't know about you, but I don't think I live up to my capacity to be joyful. I don't think I live to my capacity to have joy in life. Paul says this to pagan people. God has given you food. How many of you think you'd probably prefer the food that you've eaten to the food that they probably ate? God's given you raiment. How many of you think you'd probably prefer the raiment that you're wearing to the raiment that they were wearing? God gave them lodging. How many of you think you'd probably prefer the, 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 the dorm room that you're in to the, the kind of whatever they used to live in? And he says he's filled your heart with gladness. And that's the kind of roommate you want to have, isn't it? A roommate whose heart is filled with gladness. And I just want to remind you, when you have joy, when you enjoy a an aspect of God's grace, just remember who is the giver of all good gifts. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors in a lot of ways, famously said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. See, we're not created to be fulfilled by food by raiment, by rain from common grace. God gives us enjoyment. But true fulfillment is even better than that. It's even bigger than that. It's even higher than that. It's more eternal than that. And that's what you and I get to do in the gospel ministry. We get to participate in God's greatest blessings The greatest illustration of God's grace is not the rain. And it's not the gladness in your heart, even as a pagan person. The greatest illustration of God's grace is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul was there preaching it. And we're here preaching it. The reality is, when we look at the world, there's no possible way to make sense of the world that we see without God being the basis and being the foundation. God's not afraid of our questions. God's not afraid to provide reasons for belief. God God is certainly not stingy when it comes to giving us evidence for Him. And He tells us to have an answer for every man that asketh us for the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. The reality is God wants us to have a reason. God wants us to have a confident faith. God wants us to go boldly into the world in which He's called us to serve and to share Him. So here Paul is with pagan people If you know the end of the story, it doesn't turn out great in the next couple of verses. But you read far enough, it turns out God redeems a called out assembly right there in Lystra. And the the message that we see here that Paul is preaching is not one... Uh, is not one that, that he's preaching to the Jewish people or to the philosophers. He's preaching to completely pagan people. But what he tells them is God exists. The revelation of God through the miracles. The revelation of God through creation. The revelation of God through common grace. The goodness that he gave each and every one of them.